0: Fantastic. Thanks for asking. <laughs> hmm. I love when God shows up, yeah? Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. So, we're going to continue on in our healthy family series here. And I want to ask y'all a question because this is dear to my heart. Have you ever won an argument? I mean, I'm just naturally a pretty argumentative person, and I'm pretty good at it. From the time I was young, I was learning. I was watching my family, my parents argue, learning from lawyer shows, right? Yeah, you win this argument, and you feel great. It's like, yes, I was right. And you walk away, chest puffed out. But I I have some other questions that I feel like God has begun asking, at least me, over the years, as I've won several Many, way too many arguments. Here's some questions. Sean, but but did you lose anything? You won the argument, but did you lose anything? I don't know. Well, how is your relationship now that you've won that argument? Are you closer? Are you further from one another? How about this? Did you love well? in the midst of winning that argument. Now, no no nudging your spouse or anything like that, all right? This is about you reflecting, you yourself letting God ask these questions to you. When you win an argument, do you love well? Do you lose anything? Are you closer in that relationship afterwards? Is there a cost to winning? Is it possible brothers and sisters, to win, lose? Is it possible to win but still lose? Is it possible to be right and still be wrong? Is it possible to be right, wrong? Is it possible to win, lose? That's the questions we're going to explore today. We're going to jump right into God's Word, and we're going to see what the Bible says about conflict. Has anyone here ever experienced conflict in your life? I must be the only one, right? None of you guys? All right, good. Since y'all are perfect, I'm just going to preach to myself today, okay? Ready? Let's go to 1 Samuel. We're still going to be in this, kind of this story of David and his saga, all right? 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you didn't bring your Bible, I encourage you to grab one in the seat back in front of you. Or they might be underneath there these days. Grab one of those. Turn to, with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6. But first, let's pray. Lord, would you reveal your word to us? And Lord God, may your word be practical today. May your word be tangible. May it be digestible for us today, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, Holy Spirit. And would you use this to help us live and love better? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First Samuel 24, verses 1 through 6. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said... This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord." Alright, so to catch us up a little bit on this story, so David's been living in the, in the palace with Saul. He's been serving Saul, playing music when Saul goes crazy with the demonic things that are happening there. But just being this, this warrior for the, the kingdom and being this servant for the king. But that did not please Saul. Saul is becoming jealous. Saul is becoming a raving lunatic. And now we've reached a point in relationship with Saul and with David where Saul is chucking spears, trying to pin David against the wall. Now, y'all have some conflict. Let me ask you, who here is getting spears chucked at him? Not as many hands were raised. Okay, good. So we, we understand that this level of conflict might be at a deeper level than some of our conflicts that we're going through right now. Amen? Okay, good. So we have that understanding. That's fantastic. So David has decided to flee. Pretty smart decision. He's not going to stick around and see if Saul's aim gets any better, right? I think that's smart. So he takes off, he runs, he has some men, and they go and they stay in this cave. And now Saul, he's fighting the Philistines, he's chasing them away, but he also has this motive that he's going to kill David. He's going to take David out because David is now a threat to the kingdom. Saul, in his heart of hearts, knows David is going to be the next king, and he wants to obliterate that. He wants to end that any way that he can. So right after he's done chasing out the Philistines, he goes after David and finds out where David is. And David and his men are hanging out in the back of a cave. Now, this isn't like Cave of the Winds right up the road here that has the lights. You know what I'm talking about? So it's a very dark cave, and they're in the back, and, and Saul goes into the cave and decides it's time to take care of business. You know what I'm talking about, right? I'm looking at the young people. They know what I'm talking about. Okay, good. Just making sure you're following along with me. So he goes, and he has to, he has to take care of business. He has to do a number one, right? Yeah, so he's doing that, but he can't see in the back of the cave, and that's where David's men are. But if you're in the back of a cave, and you're looking, you can see what's coming in, because the light's from the front, right? So they see Saul. This is the man who's trying to kill David. And he's there, and he's unprotected. His men don't follow him, thankfully, right? When I, My people don't follow me into the restroom. I'm pretty glad for that. That'd be awkward. Saul's men don't follow him into the restroom. So he's going to the restroom, and they see this, and they're saying, David, this is it, man. Look at the opportunity that God has given you. Go up, slice this guy's throat, and be done with this madness. Take the throne that is yours. You've been anointed king. You know it's your time. Let's go. Do it. And so David stands up. He has his sword. He walks over. And Saul obviously dropped his robe to take care of business. And he goes and he cuts off a little piece of the robe. And then he goes back. And then he starts to feel guilty about this. Now, this puzzles me, brothers and sisters. This puzzles me. He starts to feel guilty about this. I mean, he could have went and just killed this man who's trying to kill him. That's right, isn't it? That's just, isn't it? I mean, you think about the atrocities that Saul is doing. Saul is trying to kill David. Saul, while David was faithfully serving, chucking spears at him, trying to kill him, and now chasing him all over the wilderness. David, what are you doing? Why aren't you killing Saul? What's wrong with you? This is your opportunity. That's what the men are thinking, right? But David feels guilty for even cutting off the corner of the robe of his master, God's anointed one. What kind of a crazy man is David? And what can we learn from this story about conflict? The first thing I want to say to you guys is this. Conflict is inevitable. Conflict is, and can I get an amen for that? I mean, are, are none of you dealing with conflict constantly? Am I the only one? I feel like I can't go to the DMV without conflict, right? They like set it up for conflict. They, they're really good at this, right? Conflict is absolutely inevitable, but here's what Scripture tells us. Though conflict is often a complete, utter disaster, failure, I mean, you know, conflict can lead to all sorts of things. Divorce in families, estrangement with people that, that we grew up with, that we love, that we, that we know so deeply. It can lead to loss of limb and life. It can lead to loss of freedom. And, and in church, think about what it costs us. Churches divide and split. Are people just leave with their feelings hurt and take as many people as they can with them? Though it's so often just a a complete and utter failure, conflict does not have to be a disaster. That's what scripture teaches us. Conflict doesn't have to be as painful and horrible as it is, as we allow it to be. Amen? So, today we're going to start with learning kind of the wrong ways to do conflict. Yeah? Can we do that? You're all like, well, give me the answer. What do I do? Well, let's start with the wrong things, which you shouldn't do. I like to learn from what not to do. I think that's just because that's how I naturally learn in life. I do it the wrong way about a hundred times until I realize that's the wrong way, right? So let's talk about the wrong ways to deal with conflict. The first wrong way is this. One way you should not deal with conflict in your life is avoidance. What do I mean by avoidance? Well, somebody has harmed me, or I perceive that somebody has harmed me, and so I'm just going to avoid that human being. We do it here at church, don't we? We know what sections of the atrium not to walk by because they might just be there, right? We get off the elevator and we know, just look straight left because they might be over here on the right and just book it for the worship center. (laughs) Or we make ourselves really busy workaholics, right? We don't want to deal with that conflict in our relationships at home with our family. I'll just work until they all go to bed and then sneak in. Avoidance doesn't change anything, brothers and sisters. All avoidance does is it lets it simmer. It lets it just sit there and marinate inside of you. And can I tell you what we naturally do when something is just marinating inside of us? We forget what the real issue is, and we exaggerate and imagine it being much worse than it is, don't we? Don't we? Somebody, let's just take, you, you walk into church, you try to say hi to somebody, and they just kind of ignore you. They're just passing by you. I know I do this a lot unintentionally. But, but then we, we, we there, boy, that really hurt my feelings. That really upset me. There's some conflict. I'm going to avoid that person. Within three months, it's turned from that person didn't say hi to me one morning to that person hates my guts and we're enemies to the very end. And they don't know anything about it. They just had to hurry up and do what Saul had to do, right? They were rushing to the restroom. They didn't, they didn't even see you. See, we let it, when we avoid it, we let it simmer, we let it marinate, and then it grows into something that it never was, amen? And our imagination, our, our minds are, are just beautifully wired by God to be able to imagine these incredible things so that we can dream big with him, but sometimes it goes the wrong direction when it's not submitted to the Lord, and it actually harms us. I want to say that I, this is just, a, I didn't read this anywhere, this is just what I think. 80% of the conflicts that we think in our life are actually non-existent. At least in my life. 80% of the time when I think there's conflict and then I go to that person and say, hey, what's going on with you and I? Why is there? They're like, what are you talking about, Sean? Great imagination, bro. Way Way to make that one up. Because it's not really there. Or maybe there was a wrong, but that wasn't their intentionality, amen. And and just not avoiding itself can can just stop it, can cut the head off the snake of that conflict. You tracking? Next thing we shouldn't do in conflict, the next wrong way is vengeance. Get even, right? Don't get mad, get even. <laughs> Revenge. I mean, Sean, God loves justice, right? God, God is a, a just God, isn't he? He loves it. He's, he's all about making things, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What did Jesus say? He says, you've heard that, but let me tell you. Let me tell you. It's not an eye for an eye. It's not a tooth for a tooth. And let me just clue you in really quick. If you love justice to the level that that every single harm, every single wrong that's been done to you has to somehow be avenged, what on earth would happen if you got what you deserved? Got quiet in here. Wow, like the oxygen just left. What would happen if you got what you deserved? Man, we love justice when it's somebody else. We really don't love it when it's on ourselves, right? We want mercy, great grace, and mercy abounds for me. But for you, that sucker over there, he deserves it, right? Get him. Vengeance isn't the right way to go. The problem is with this idea that God loves justice. Is that's true? But He says vengeance is the Lord's. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not yours. If you've been wronged, if you've been harmed, yes, there is justice. But it's not yours to, to make happen, amen? It's not yours to do. It's not yours to exact. And the final thing, <clears throat> that wrong way that we do it, oh, this one. I'm going to spend some time on this one because this is like church 101 right here. You ready? The final one is this thing called triangulation. Is anyone familiar with triangulation? A few of you, okay, good. Are you masters of triangulation or you just know of it? All right, mostly, yeah. Triangulation is this really uh, profound thing that we do, okay? And we're going to, to learn about triangulation, we're going to see a diagram of some friends of ours, all right? Our friends are Jim, John, and Jane. You tracking? You with me? You see him up on the, okay, see him up on the screen? Good. So this is what triangulation is, all right? First of all, you have John, he's the bad guy, he's the persecutor, okay? What happens is, is John does something to harm our victim, Jim. John does something to harm Jim. Now, it doesn't have to be real. It just could be perceived. Jim perceives that John has done something, right? But in some way, there's some kind of offense between John and Jim. And so what does Jim do? Jim goes to Jane, our rescuer, Okay. So the victim, this is step two, Jim, he goes out and he seeks a rescuer. He finds Jane, and she loves to hear these kind of stories. Do I have anyone in here who loves for people to come to them and tell them all their problems? Don't raise your hand. But you might find yourself in a a situation of triangulation if that's you. So Jim seeks out this rescuer. In walks Jane. Jane, step three, decides that something must be done. This is unjust. This is intolerable. We can't just live with what John has done to Jim. And so she goes to John. I'm going to confront John. She goes. She talks to John. And step four is this. John is absolutely blindsided by this. He had no idea that he had done anything wrong to Jim. He had no idea that Jim felt this way. And, and frankly, it's, it's really upsetting. And frankly, it's, it's hurting his feelings that all this chatter has been going on behind his back. Now, step five, Jim is the persecutor. John's like, Jim, why did he, why did he go to Jane? Why did he talk behind my back? Why didn't, he just come to, why didn't he feel like he could just come to me and say, hey, what's going on? Or why did he perceive it to be that way? What's a, he is such a bad guy. He has hurt me now. So I'm going to go find a rescuer. Jane, come here. You're still here with me. You just... Me. I can't believe that Jim told you that. That's not what happened. Here's what really happened. Jim is a jerk. And Jane's like, yeah. Jim is a jerk. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go confront Jim. <laughs> There's another way that this might play out. It, it might be like this. John. So, so John hears from Jane that Jim is upset. So John just goes to Jim. Okay, Jane, thanks for letting me know. I appreciate that. John, John goes to Jim. Jim, I heard that you, you were upset with me or whatever. Now, Jim goes, yeah, it's not that big of a deal, though. You know, I was, I was a little upset, but hey, you know, thanks for apologizing. Everything's cool. We're brothers. Bro hug, right? It's, it's all right. He's like, yeah, I was, I was just really surprised, Jim, that, that Jane came to me and, and said that. And Jim goes, Jane went to you and said that. Really? I mean, I shared something in confidence with her. I didn't want her, I just wanted her to pray for me. I didn't want her to go to you. I can't believe that she did that. John, I'm so sorry that she went to you, man. She's a, you know, she is a bit of a gossip, isn't she? Now we've reversed it the other way. Jim, still the victim. Jane is the persecutor, and John is the rescuer because now John's going to have to go to Jane and say, Jane, you crazy witch, what were you thinking? You see how this is never going to end, and it's certainly not going to end well, brothers and sisters. Yes? Can we just say that anytime you want to be in a triangle, it's not going to work out well for you. It's not going to work out well for the relationships that you have. You might win, lose. You might be right, but it's the wrong way to do it. You can win, lose, and be right, wrong when you do triangulation. Amen. So what do you do, Sean? What do I do if I find myself in a triangle? I mean, here I am. We've been in a 28-year triangle, back and forth. So in a triangle, you got A, B, and C, right? If you're, you know, any mathematicians in here? You know what I'm talking about? The, the, the corners, the angles. It's an, and it, we always say it's an A, B conversation, so see your way out. You know what I'm talking about? You've heard that. Come on, you said that to your kids. How do you get out of a triangle? See your way out of it. Just be done with it. No, no, John, listen to me. Jim, listen to me. I'm not going to be here as a rescuer for you. Jim, I want you to go talk to John. And here's the thing. When are you going to go talk to John? What is the date that you're going to do that? Because at the end of that date, I'm going to ask you how that went. And if you didn't do it, I'm going to drag you by the ear to John. And you guys are going to sit down right in front of me. And you two are going to talk. I don't want to be a part of this triangle. I am not your rescuer. It's not my job. Scripture tells us to daily pick up our crosses. Amen? It doesn't tell us to pick up other people's crosses. If if Jim and John are in a conflict, Jane, it's not yours. It's not yours. See your way out. That's an A-B thing. Can I just say that there's no triangles in a straight line? (laughs) there's no triangles in a straight line. You can't do it. But there is a right way. Shall I show you? Soon. It's coming up. Soon. Let's go back to David for a minute. Let's go back to our friend and our story here, our hero. If David avoided this conflict... Saul wouldn't have been given a chance to repent, nor would David's future kingdom recognize that David was a man of God. I want you to think about that for a minute. Israel needed a warrior king, amen? There's all these attacks going on, there's all this fighting. Let me tell you what Israel didn't need is a coward king. I know it's a strong word, but when we are just people of avoidance, there's there's a little bit of cowardice in there, isn't it? We we just don't want to deal with the the pains of, of possibly this conflict. It's scary. We don't want that. If David had avoided this conflict altogether, he would have been perceived as a coward and he would not have secured the throne. His throne would have always been in question. What if our friend David, our hero in the story, had enacted vengeance? Right then and there. He could have the men were telling him, I mean, they were using scripture to say, this is it, he's been brought to you, He is, he's placed under your feet, go right now, stab him, get this over with. What if David had enacted vengeance at that time? This is really interesting, brothers and sisters, if he took the kingdom by force, there would have been so much bloodshed. You would have had David's people, and you would have had Saul's people, and they would have just been a constant war, amen? And what would have happened is, is simply... David would have took the throne and the palace and and Saul's people would have left the palace and went in hiding and there would still be war and conflict right there would have been really no resolution it would have just been a flipping of roles that would have taken place and at the same time David would have set this precedent that you can kill God's chosen and anointed one you don't like the way that someone is is kinging so to speak you just kill him and then someone else can take the throne What do you think that would do to David when he was on the throne if someone didn't like the decisions he made? He set the precedent. It's okay to kill God's anointed one. It's okay to kill the king of Israel. You can do that. If David would have enacted vengeance, vengeance would have been enacted upon him, I promise you. Jesus said it best. He says, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Remember that? He told Peter, put that sword away. What are you doing? This isn't that kind of a kingdom. We're not that kind of people. That's not how we handle conflict, amen? That's not how David handled conflict. In fact, David was so set on not enacting vengeance that he felt guilty for cutting a little tiny piece. I, that robe must have been so big and so fluffy and so purple and so royal that I bet Saul wouldn't have even noticed. He wouldn't have even noticed, but David repented. David felt guilty for even doing that. He didn't enact or or exact vengeance, and it's really good for his future that he didn't do that. Amen. God took care of that one, didn't he? You just read, read a little bit into the end of 1 Samuel, beginning of 2 Samuel, you'll see how God did it all. God took care of it. David didn't have to do a thing that went against his conscience in this time of his life to become king. Isn't that amazing? You can resolve conflict, brothers and sisters, without having to do anything that your conscience would object to. Isn't that good news this morning? Now, our hero here, what if, now you can argue, I think, that there might have been a little bit of triangulation going on with David, right? You got Jonathan, that whole situation. But I'd say, here's the difference. David didn't want Jonathan to rescue him. There was a difference in the heart. So I want you to hear me clearly. It might not, if you're in the midst of a conflict, it might not be a bad idea to get an advisor around you. It might not be a bad idea to get somebody that you trust who can speak into the situation, but check your heart. If you want that person to be a rescuer, you are starting triangulation. And, and we could say, okay, well, I just, want, I just want them to pray for me. Or, or worse yet, we just need to pray for so-and-so because he's been hurting people. But what we really want in our heart is triangulation. What we really want to do is raise up this army against that person. If that's your heart, don't do it. Keep it between you and them. Don't Go to the Lord with that. But it might make sense to get an advisor or someone, maybe a spiritual mother or father to speak into it. But it better be the type of relationship where they can challenge you. It better be the type of relationship where they can look you square in the eyes and say, you know what? You're wrong. And here's how you're wrong. Do you have people like that in your life? I hope you do. You want to live the kingdom life? Have people who are willing to challenge you. We talked about the invitation challenge, right? The grace and truth. Pastor Eric drew that up here for us. If your relationship is only in that, quiet, that, that, like, that cozy, like it's only, it's only grace, it's only invitation, no one ever challenges me, if that's the relationship, that's not the person to go to in the situation where you're in conflict. Right? Go to the person who's going to tell you the truth. Go to the person who's going to tell you how wrong you are. If he had remained in this triangulation in an unhealthy way, David, if he had really wanted Jonathan to be his rescuer and he wasn't willing to deal with the conflict himself, I want you to think about this. David doesn't fight his own battle and he becomes king. Jonathan fights the battle for him, but David becomes king. If you're a Saul follower, if Saul was your man, if Saul was your king, right? We're in the midst of this like political season in America, right? Where it's like us and them, right? And and your us might be different than my us and, and that's just the reality, right? But this was an us and them situation too. There was those who were for David. There was those who were for Saul, if if David didn't fight his own battle or let the Lord fight the battle for him but Jonathan did Saul's son tell me that that would have been a secure throne and tell me that that would have ended the bloodshed and tell me that there would have been peace in Israel after David took the throne it couldn't have happened David knew that he had to carry his own cross He went to Jonathan. He had an advisor. He had someone who loved him well. We were talking about that. That's important, friends. And it's important to have people like that that you can even bring into these kind of conflict situations. But he didn't ask Jonathan to rescue him. And by the way, being a a, spiritual friend like we're talking about, don't rescue them. That's the worst thing you can do. Don't rescue them. Help them, guide them to go to the Lord and let God be their rescuer. And and Jonathan kind of did that, and, and David received that. David fought his own battle. And therefore, when God did it, David and the kingdom had peace. Amen? Now, the right way. Shall we? Okay, Sean, we've learned enough about the wrong ways to handle conflict. Let's talk about the right way to handle conflict Let's do that. Let's see if scripture has anything to say about conflict. Do you think it does? Oh, you guys are so smart. Man. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. You have time because I'm turning there too. I forgot to bookmark it. (laughs) Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Now listen, this is if you are the offender, if you've wronged somebody. You ready? Have you ever wronged anybody? No one in here, right? We don't need to listen. We just skip this one. Oh, you have wronged people. Okay. Me too. Matthew 5. Am I in the wrong? There you go. Yeah. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Now, has something against you doesn't mean that you have to agree that you did it. Amen? It just means that you know that they have something against you. And it might not be that they told you. It might be the passive-aggressive thing. And that's how you know they have something against you. So leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled. That's a cool word that we're going to be talking about the rest of our time here. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Where's the triangle in that? First, go and ask somebody if you actually did anything wrong and then go to them, right? First, go and find out that you have a bunch of friends who also... Think that they're really rude for having something against you. And then all of you go. First, just avoid it, pretend it didn't happen, and leave your gift. You're at the altar, right? First, go and make sure you make their life really miserable because they have something against you and they shouldn't do that. They're so mean, they're so rude. Then come back and leave your offering. That's not what. No, God says go and be reconciled. Go to that person, straight line, no triangle. You go to them in private. Hey, man, I I can just tell that, that we're there's something with us. What's going on? Can we talk about it? We, I, I just want to, if I've done something, and there's a level of humility that you can have, amen. If I've done something, please, I, I want to know about it. And I ask for your forgiveness. Is anyone in here, do, they, do you believe you're perfect? Now, now here's a question. The people who have something against you, do you think they think you're perfect? So it's not a secret. Okay. Uh, so I can talk about it, right? It's out in the open. Nobody believes you're perfect, brothers and sisters. They're not going to be shocked if you say, man, I made a mistake. But what continues to harm is when you refuse to do that. Amen. Let's continue on in Scripture. Just turn over to Matthew 18 with me. Matthew 18 is one of the (laughs) toughest things in Scripture for me sometimes. Here it is, 21 through 22. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Bummer. In other translations, it's seven, seventy times seven times. Any mathematicians in here? The point is, it's, it's like if you're keeping notches on how many times you've forgiven that person, you haven't really forgiven them, Amen. So if you really forgive him, you've lost track of how many times you've forgiven him, and therefore you're just going to con- keep on continuing to forgive them. And what do you do if you're the victim? You forgive, you start with this attitude that I want to forgive. And then what do you do? You go to that person. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you between the two of you, but I should bring the pastor in, right? I should bring my my best friend. I should bring my army, right? Because this is scary. You know what's really scary is having someone come to you that says, hey, you've messed up, and they have an army behind them. That's what's really scary, amen? That's not setting you up for success. Just you and him. Just you and her. Just go to that person in private, not in front of, don't call them out in front of other people. Don't go when they're like shaking hands in the atrium and be like, hey, you really wronged me. And everyone's like, whoa, you know, don't do that. Just say, hey, hey, can we get coffee and and just talk? Just go to him. I have this diagram that shows us the right way to do it. Uh, A close friend of mine came up with this diagram. Some of you might know him, Ben Brooks. Okay, cool. Can we pop this diagram up? This is a diagram of reconciliation. There you go. Can you see it? It's got our scriptures there. So you have the offender on one side, and then this is the the person who uh, has been offended on the other side. And notice that both have a scripture that says that they are to go to the other one. You're not off the hook if you're the good guy, and you're not off the hook if you're the bad guy. Do you see it? And it starts with this idea of having a Christ-like attitude. And Christ-like attitude always is going to lead to Christ-like actions. What is a Christ-like attitude? Being humble. Humble. Not necessarily wanting to win for the sake of winning. Wanting to win-win. Amen. Wanting to be right-right, not right-wrong. Definitely not wanting to be wrong wrong. Sometimes we find out we've been wrong, so we better be wrong right. In other words, we're wrong, but we do it the right way to make it right. You tracking? If you're to go away from the other person, you see it's away from the cross, it's away from Christ's way. To go away from that person, to just bail, to just be done on either side, is not God's heart, not what God has for us in the midst of conflict. God says, come together. Be humble. Be willing to admit that maybe you own part of this. I have, I have been involved in many reconciliations over the years, just being in ministry, that's going to happen. And it's actually quite a pleasure to do that, usually. Sometimes not so much. But, but when they do end up coming together, I, I really can't remember a single instance I mean this, a single instance where both parties didn't have to own something in the conflict. Can we just start with that assumption? If if you have something against somebody else, they might have something against you. You haven't done it perfectly, right? You've messed it up. We already got that out there. None of us are perfect. Both parties can admit where they've missed it, And then both parties can do verse 21 and 22 of Matthew 18. You can forgive the other person. And this magical word that we read in chapter 5, reconciliation, takes place. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And then you win. You truly win. Both of you win, you don't lose. You don't lose relationship. You don't betray your conscience or the conviction of the Holy Spirit within you. You don't have to go repent to God later about the way you won. You just won. And the other person just won. And you both grow closer together. Relationships that I have where we had to have reconciliation take place, we're closer afterwards, actually. There's a level of trust. There's a level of intimacy that might not have been there before. Now it's there. And as you grow closer to each other, God's heart is pleased. You grow closer to the Lord. That's a win, win, win. That's a win, 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 brothers and sisters. Think about in the family dynamics right now what's taking place all across, just in our community, just just in our community of faith. Divorce is taking place. There are people that don't speak to one another in their families any longer. There are are children who don't speak to their, their elderly parents any longer because of wrongs, because of conflict that has taken place. Now listen to me. If someone's chucking spears at your head, don't go to their house. That's okay. Don't get... Spears chucked, and all spears are not physical, amen? Can we just say that? There's been some really bad theology about this kind of stuff that has caused women to stay in abusive relationships and and people to to stay just in harmful situations. I'm not telling you to do that. And I don't think the Lord's telling you to do that. But unless a spear's being chucked at your head, physically, verbally, spiritually, you gotta go to them you got to fix it. What about churches? Oh my gosh, how many folks leave churches? And there's this saying that I've heard that just breaks my heart. I'm going to share it with you and I hope it breaks your heart. The saying is this, people who leave churches, leave churches. People who leave churches, leave churches. And and you see it, unfortunately, when you've been in the ministry for any amount of time. People who, who wander in, because they left because of some conflict in their last church, inevitably get in conflict in the new church, and then they leave again. Now, I'm not, that, that might, you might find yourself in that situation. I'm not trying to shame you this morning. I'm just trying to say, can we end that cycle? Can we grow? Can, can SCC, can everyone sitting here today that calls this their church home, can we decide this is our church home? This is a family, and sometimes family hurts each other but you don't leave family. You work it out with family. You have fierce conversations with family. You get real with family. And when you do that, then our relationships become stronger because we're being reconciled to God first, then to one another, constantly. And what else happens is you learn how to quit hurting people And then you learn how to love people better to where they're not hurting you. Have you ever asked that question, why did that offend me so bad? It it wouldn't have snagged you unless there was something inside of you. Insecurity, identity stuff, right? It wouldn't have snagged you the way it did. You gotta ask that question when you've been offended. Why did that hit me like that? I know we've been very practical this morning. That That was my goal. I hope that some of you, most of you, if you haven't already, have changed your mind about conflict. I hope that this gives you some direction that you don't have to be afraid of it. You don't have to avoid it. Just because you're in conflict doesn't mean you have to sin. And just because you're in conflict doesn't mean you have to sever relationships. There's another way. There's another way. I hope that you've changed your mind and I hope that you're going to like the Lord has asked me to do this week in a very challenging way, I hope you've decided, starting now, Lord, I'm going to do this your way, with your help. I'm going to do this the way Scripture says to do it, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, is the Lord speaking to you About some real situations. We talked about the hypothetical Johns and Jims and Janes, all those jerks. What about the real jerks? Maybe you're the real jerk this morning. What does God want you to do with the real conflicts present and past? In your families, in your workplaces. You're at church. It's probably something. Because God cares about it. God cares about unity. God cares about people being reconciled. And for nothing else, God wants your heart to be free of it. Some of us are just carrying luggage everywhere we go. And it's so heavy, isn't it? Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of being bitter? Aren't you tired of not knowing where you stand in your aren't you tired of, of just stuffing the emotions down? Just let go. God, you have a way. Just let go. We're going to stand and respond in worship.